Hello, listeners. This is Chris Miller, co-host of your all-time favorite podcast, Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. If you like what you hear and you want to lend your support, please go to patreon.com slash trrpod. And for as little as $1 a month, you can receive early access to new episodes as well as exclusive bonus content. That's right, it's a dollar. Come on, you have that much money right now in that weird little gap between your driver's seat and your center console. It's probably rattling around in the dryer right now. If you have a dog, there's a good chance that it has eaten that much change at least once in its life. So, for your beloved pet's sake, consider going to patreon.com slash trrpod and giving us that dollar instead. Your dog will thank you, and so will I. And now, on with the show. sometimes I walk through life and I have to ask myself a bunch of questions, such as, you know, what's the meaning of all this? Why are we here? Who is the perfect woman for me and why is it our subject today? Didn't we already do this with the, the like, Irish, like, female gangsters when they were just, like, throwing bricks and, like, wearing ears? You mean the one who liked to bite people and had, like, the spiky claws? Hellcat. Hellcat Maggie. Oh, yeah. What I... would Hellcat Maggie think? Oh, no, I'm cheating on Hellcat Maggie. That's been uh, probably oh, unwise. Oh, I'm a monster. Even, I'm dead. I'm dead. Even with this one in your corner. Like, I don't even know if the two of you have a shot at this. Who is the, uh, oh, my goodness, I can't remember. Who is the one that used to just, like, walk out and randomly beat the shit out of people while, like, holding a whole barrel? Oh, it was, um... And then it was, like, a suffragette. Yeah. Like, this is, like, a 100% real person. It's, like, her at the front of these, like, women's suffrage, like, parades. Hold on. But I'm... would just like randomly walk out into the street and just absolutely clobber people. I, you guys are gonna have to stop this because I'm, I'm, I'm six to midnight. Like we gotta <laughs> knock it off. I we're gonna have to get on with 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 the episode here because I'm getting distracted already. Rob's over here all sweaty. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. Uh, I'm I'm all for Klimt, and I am your host Rob North. I am your co-host Chris Miller, and I am Kyle Graper. And welcome to Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades, everybody. So today we are casting the uh, casting the history net way way back into the time into into time. Uh, this is this is going back a ways. I'm looking forward to this. this is this is, our uh, earliest? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is. And uh, again, we are still on our little trend of uh, covering some female subjects because uh, it has been requested. And we want to honor those requests. And I think we picked a pretty uh, pretty badass subject. Um, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to your accent for this one. I... But before we get any further, it was Gallus Mag. Gallus, Gallus Mag. Mag. That's who it was. At the hole in the wall. Yeah. I remembered the bar, but I couldn't remember the bouncer. Has a New England uh, microbrewery named anything after her yet? Uh, which one? The one who wailed on people. No, with no, barrels. no. I mean, like which brewery? Yeah, oh, that's fair. <laughs> I, I'm sure there's at least three in Hell's Kitchen now that are the Gallus Mag, like distillery, brew house, social hall, <laughs> coffee shop, opium I, den. Yeah. Well, like, what, what else? They got? Is Gastro Pub still a thing? Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, what a heinous word. Yeah. The, oh um, my industry. The, it's so weird. <laughs> If I had to pick an accent for the subject today, the problem is 
It's not like we have any recordings from 2,000 years ago. So I would have to go by... Well, you just didn't want to do the legwork again. I was like, whenever you wouldn't learn Mandarin. I, uh, I know. I've, three I've been, weeks. I've been busy, Three sir. weeks. And, but if we're going to go by what's presented to us, I'm going to have to put on a very proper, like, Rada, Lambda, you know, whatever the female version of John Gielgud is. And uh, I'm not Boy, sure... Boy, that's I'm a niche to, joke. I'm not sure I'm willing to do that. <laughs> not sure I'm willing to do that. But, I mean, I'm willing to make niche jokes about... Uh, Fame movie actors from the 1940s, but normally that's Kyle's territory. Uh, historically, yeah. Yeah, I'm stepping out on your patch here, buddy. What you gonna do about it? I'm going to burn down your town. Fair enough. I mean, we Even live five minutes is, away, so say, yeah, it's kind of yours as well. <laughs> There's a busway between us. I'll be fine. <laughs> oh, the, the the fire break that is the Pittsburgh busway. Yes. Oh, Fair you, enough. You mean the moat to keep yeah. the black people out of Shady Side? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, don't don't worry, <laughs> they outpriced them. So uh, they I priced outpriced them where they're at too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yay gentrification! <laughs> so we all know the stories of what happens when someone gets pushed too far. Gary Plochet, Marvin Hemeyer, and his killdozer, and the entire town of Skidmore, Missouri, when they'd finally had enough of just one truly awful guy. But what happens when the person who gets pushed to the point of snapping is a queen? And what happens when the ones who pushed her to the point of snapping? were the greatest empire the Western world has ever seen. Today we begin the story of a woman who has gone down in history as someone who proudly wears the label of renegade, as somebody who took, the, took on the greatest military force the world has, had seen to that point and almost beat them, and as someone who was still a symbol for the downtrodden, for the underdogs, for freedom fighters. She has huge bronze statues honoring her deeds, standing up to an imperial invader, trying to force back the overwhelming might of an empire that went back on its word and sought to squash the independent spirit of her people. She is Boudicca, warrior queen of the Iceni, and she stands out as one of history's most unlikely and memorable rebels. Her story still stands out almost 2,000 years after its conclusion because of the fact that she stood up against the inexorable military might of the Roman Empire's legions and sowed a path of terror and destruction through Rome's holdings that set the empire on edge and made it fear the worst. That a quote-unquote barbarian rebellion, led by a woman no less, could go so far as to kick the expansion of the Roman Empire back across the English Channel. Now, Rome had known defeat before, at Cannae at the hands of Hannibal, the slaughter of Varus's legions in the darkness of the Teutoburg Forest, the terror that Spartacus unleashed in the heart of the Italian countryside, but no strike back against the Roman Empire had the popular appeal as that of Boudicca's revolt, because it was motivated not by political goals or conquest or wealth or even some lofty ideal of freedom, at least not at its heart. The great British warrior queen unleashed her rebellion out of a desire for nothing but vengeance. She had suffered, and therefore Rome would pay. Now before we go on to our sources, I just want to make note, uh, a little content warning. This uh, episode will contain mentions of sexual assault, we're not trying to be gratuitous with things. It is a central point in the story. Right. It's kind of, it's it's why this happens. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a catalytic point in the story. She and that's, references it later as being like, anyway, this is why I'm doing this. Yeah. Uh, we're not going to go into too much detail about it because there really isn't much, but it still does play a part. And I know that this can be a triggering thing for some listeners. So if it is for you, maybe consider giving this one a skip. We understand if you do, and we'll see you in the next one. Uh, so shall we move on to sources? Well, we, don't, we don't have a whole hell of a lot. <laughs> so I've used a couple modern texts. Mm-hmm. Um, the first is Boudicca, Iron Age Warrior Queen by Drs. Richard Hengley and Christina Unwin. 
Both are British historians and archaeologists who specialize in the early Roman occupation of Britain. Uh, this is a perfectly passable historical text. It contains a ton of context. It's informative, analytical, and it has some really interesting appendices as well. I mean, it's not the most knockout text we've ever used uh, for this podcast, but it absolutely is worth the read. I've also pulled from Boudicca and the British Revolt Against Rome by Graham Webster. And then there's the classical sources. <laughs> These get a little bit... I don't know, is aggravating the right word? Mm, I think it's appropriate. I mean, they're interesting, but yeah. uh, we are basing our research from four main documents from Roman writers that come down to us that depict the events of the Boudican Revolt. The first two come from Tacitus, probably Rome's most famous historian, who wrote the, uh, the Agricola in 98 AD and the Annals in around 110. Now, he's writing several decades after the fact, but his father-in-law was a Roman official in Britain while these events of our stories were occurring, so he is only two degrees separated from the story. Then we have The Lives of the Caesars by historian Suetonius, written in 121 AD, I believe. Now, this lengthy volume breaks events of, in the empire down to what happened in each emperor's reign, but it does devote quite a lot of pages to the events in Britain, and so I've made use of it here. And finally, we have the depictions of the Boudican Revolt that are found in Cassius Dio's 80-volume History of the Roman Empire. Now, he goes all the way back to the founding of Rome in 753 BC, and he takes things all the way up to when he finished his work in AD 235. But he also devotes significant energy to Boudicca and her story, even though it's, it's almost two centuries separated from those events. So there's two points I want to make while we're talking about our sources. The first is our main character's name. Because there's so many ways that it's spelled and pronounced. You'll see Boudicca with one C, Boudicca with two Cs. Sometimes you'll see Boudicca with an I-A at the end. You know, the Welsh pronounce it Budug, and there's the Latinized... I, it's not the prettiest name. And I had, man, I had to look that up. Dude, the Welsh phonetic alphabet? Tricky. Uh, and then there's the Latinized version of our heroine's name that appears in all the Roman texts and on the plinths of all the statues of her that were put up in the 18th, 19th century, Boadicea. But given that she was fighting to kick the Romans out of Britain, I've gone with using the Brythonic pronunciation in my notes and scripts, so Boudicca it is. One C or two, it's up to you. I was going to say, you on team one C or two Cs? I am on team two Cs because two Cs does not trigger the spell check indicator on my word processor. Ah, I like two Cs. It just feels right. Mm-hmm. It's also... Uh, I also didn't didn't realize that... Well, is that also because you're Italian? Boudicca. Mamma mia. <laughs> not on. Oh, madre de Dio. Uh, but... <laughs> I didn't realize how modern uh, the the pronunciation or spell even spelling of Boudicca is mm -hmm. because it was Bodicea until like 15 years ago. It really was. Well, yeah, like it was everywhere as then. Then they were like, eh. well, because there became a a fascin. And we could talk about this more in the next episode. But there became a, like a real fascination with her, starting from like the 17th century onwards, especially mm -hmm. after the English Civil War, and they all went because most of them. Most of the people who wrote about her grew up learning Latin as part of their like classical education, so they went with the Latinized spelling. I understand that, but once you get into the modern period and modern historians are looking back, they start to get into like uh, historical linguists, linguistics, and things like that, and they start to kind of trace kind of how her name would have been pronounced in the environment, and they kind of trace the language roots of the the Gallo-Celtic language groups and stuff like that, and that's where we get. Boudicca from. Um, there were a lot of people who did a lot more legwork than we did <laughs> to, to try to find this kind of stuff out. Uh, and second point I want to make, while we're discussing our sources, I do want to make note of what a challenge the research process for this series has been. 
Of all the subjects we've covered on this show so far, as you mentioned, Kyle, this one is the one that goes furthest back in history by about 12 centuries over our next oldest subject, which I think was King John. And it comes with a usual laundry list of challenges that we get with any pre-modern topic. You know, you're parsing different lexicons, you're translating, you have all of that mess. But when we do our research, we have to be especially mindful of where the biases are in the mm. sources that we use. And there are two more or more sides to every tale, of course, and our sources often reflect that, and we have to parse what the commonalities are and what the evidence supports. But what happens when one side of the story, you're dealing with a non-literate society? The Britons of the Iron Age had a fantastically complex uh, civilization, but they didn't use written language. You know, we have archaeology. That's great for context. It's great for evidence. It's, it provides a ton of information, but that still leaves us with an entire half of this story's conflict that have no one to speak for them down through the ages. And it's fascinating that things like this don't exist. And it's not mm -hmm. just limited to Boudicca. It's so much of their history simply doesn't exist, except for songs. Yeah. Because some of the songs still exist. These songs are 2,000 or more years old. Mm -hmm. But as for stories, they they didn't write them down. They yeah. just don't. The closest stuff we, we have to the original are sources that were written mostly by Irish monks in the early medieval period, a.k.a. the Dark Ages, mm -hmm. because the Irish Sea is pretty narrow. These stories cross that oh, water yeah. pretty easily. Um, yeah, but so the all the information we have for this story comes to us through a Roman lens. And that's something we'll have to keep in mind during this series. Now, when we, while we refer to people or tribal groups or place names, the names we're using are the ones given to us by Roman sources because the Celtic names just don't survive. Mm -hmm. It leaves us with a lot of unanswered questions and particular challenges in telling this story, but we will do our best to be balanced and present some possible alternatives to the Roman narrative, which, to the credit of the classical writers we're using, isn't completely whitewashed. They don't... The, the Roman writers we talked about don't exactly try to make everything nice and clean and rah rah Rome. They well, yeah, it, it certainly helps that the, the story takes place during the time of Nero, and even the historians shortly thereafter who were Roman didn't yeah. particularly enjoy those years. <laughs> yeah, which you were allowed to say after he died. Yeah. Yeah. Because God God help you if you said it while he wasn't. And uh also uh just before all this stuff kicks off, who do we have? We have a little guy named Caligula. And uh, you know, very totally totally normal dude. So any points Who order? Who is worse? <laughs> Ooh, Caligula seems like like they're two clearly different mental issues at play here. Caligula at least gave us a super metal McDowd film. I'm gonna yeah. honestly, I'm gonna go with Nero because Nero's reign was longer. It was more destructive. Markedly longer. There were there was like actual civil war that resulted from it. I'm, I'm giving it to Nero. I think he did more damage. It's probably Nero. I think Caligula's stories are a little more entertaining. Yeah. But... I mean, they're definitely more entertaining. Who was who was the bigger bad guy? I'm giving it to Nero. You know, Nero fiddled. Like it's, he he definitely burned that bitch down. And also... Was Nero... Was it Nero who would dress up as a poor person and go and, like, steal? But he had his, he had his bodyguards. He do that, he'd do that, and he also liked getting up on stage and performing, which shows you that theater people have always been dangerous. That's why Boudicca hated him. Mm. <laughs> Boudicca said a, a whole bunch of like... Turns really... out her rebellion is just the worst theater review ever written. Yeah, it was like a, a lot of stuff like, like, look at this guy, caring about how he looks and singing, and then for the rest of his speech just refers to him as her? Pretty weird. Yeah. <laughs> like, good lord. <laughs> so, any other points of order before we get on with the story, gents? Well, let's have at it. All right. No matter what your point of view... 
Roman Britain in 60 AD would have been a very interesting place to be long before anything involving Boudicca would have had even kicked off. Now, Rome had been around for over 800 years, founded as a city in 753 BC, and it had been on the march ever since. It had gone from an absolutist monarchy to a republic and on to the lines of the Caesars, and the whole time it was taking over and swallowing new territory and major barriers like oceans weren't going to slow them down. When our story takes place, Rome stretched from the entirety of the Iberian Peninsula to the Red Sea, up to what's now Ukraine, and to the northwest lay Britain, its most recent major addition to its holdings. The Roman border stretched south into the Sahara Desert, north along the Rhine River into Germany's dark forests, and was pushing into the ancient lands of Mesopotamia along the Tigris and Euphrates. Then, starting in AD, in AD 43, under the Emperor Claudius, Rome had swallowed up a cold and wet northern isle that, despite its very unmediterranean climate, looked very fertile and promising. And Rome wasn't done expanding until after it grabbed Britain, either. Now, Rome would keep growing to its largest extent around 117 AD under Trajan, so after our story, there's still more expanding to go. Now, Rome did this all on the back of its powerful offices of state and a large and well-organized bureaucracy, and on the backs of its legions. At a time when most armies were still mainly made up of peasant levies, Rome had a massive professional army, well-trained, well-armed, and armored, made up of men who would spend their whole professional lives as soldiers and be paid off in land grants after their 25 years of service was done, often thousands of miles from home. I mean, imagine, you know, Mike decides to go career in the Navy, you know, 20, 2014, they're saying, Senior Chief Ernett, congratulations, uh, we're not giving you a pension. We're not giving you VA benefits, but we are going to give you a small farm in North Dakota. Perfect. <laughs> it's, I'm sure he'd be thrilled. Wasn't that, that, that was like the whole plot point in the Sam Neill's character in Hunt for Red October. Like, that's all he wanted. Yeah, he just wanted a farm. <laughs> he wanted to raise rabbits. Yeah. <laughs> so, in addition to their field armies numbering over half a million men, Rome had hundreds of thousands of auxiliaries who were in charge of manning border forts, policing the interior, and supporting the legions when the situation called for it. Now, by 60 AD, more than 100 million people were living under Rome's banner, and the British Isles were just getting used to what that looked like. Although maybe the phrasing, just getting used to it, may not be entirely accurate. Mm. Instead of being an event, the Roman conquest of Britain was more of a process, and it was one that went back for over a century. Now, Britain wasn't some new discovery that happened when the Romans got to the northwest of France and went, oh shit, there's more. You know, Roman traders have been sailing into British inlets and, and acquiring goods for centuries, basically since they, may they got a hold of any of the port cities in Italy. Now, research-rich in general, Britain also had a lot of a particular something the Romans badly wanted. Tin. Tin, when combined with copper, makes bronze, and a metal that the Romans very much loved working with, but it's hard to come by down in the Mediterranean. The Greeks, the Phoenicians, the Carthaginians, everybody was going to Britain for their tin. But Britain was a dark and mysterious place to most of the classical world, already fearful of anything to the north, and stories abounded of wild, cannibalistic men who became worse and worse the further north in Britain you went. And there was another island, even to the west, called Hibernia, land of winter, where even greater horrors existed. The Irish. <laughs> I mean... You're saying that like any of this has changed. Yeah, there's... Why wasn't there a trigger warning for that? Well, <laughs> well I, I like to think of I like to think of the Irish as a persistent threat. One we should all be aware of. <laughs> if you can if you can see an Irishman, he can see you. Yeah. If you can't see an Irishman, you could be seconds from death. We, we don't we don't include <laughs> the trigger warning about the Irish because I feel but if because if you're listening to our show, you know 
that the threat of the Irish lurks in every episode. So we shouldn't uh, have to go out of our way. Mike could be here and not at work. Like, we just don't know. We just don't know. But I don't hear any coughing. <laughs> he's she, only done that to lull you into a false sense of security. Yeah. He doesn't cough when he's hunting. The, the, the sound of a the sound of an apple cheeked man cheek, cheekily whistling while he's walking down the street with a pig under his arm. <laughs> so. As Roman conquest got closer and closer geographically, taking over Spain and then more and more parts of Gaul, what's now France and the Low Countries, contact and trade with the Britons became more frequent and there was more money flowing back and forth. The first coins minted in Britain came about in the 2nd century BC, meant for use with Roman traders. Now finally, a long and bloody series of campaigns against the Britons' Gallic cousins came to an end with Roman victory, and Roman territory reached all the way to the English Channel, and on clear days, Roman legionaries could see the hazy shape of Dover's white cliffs in the distance. So, this fellow that named Julius Caesar decided to try his hand at a military expedition across the Channel to punish the Britons for supporting Gallic resistance against him, or so he claimed. In 55 BC, Caesar landed a couple legions in Britain's southwest in what's now Kent, although this ostensible punitive expedition didn't really get anywhere. The weather was terrible, Storms, yeah, storms damaged the Roman fleet, and Caesar didn't have any cavalry or war engines with him, so he basically burned a few villages, carried out a reconnaissance in force, grabbed a few hostages to take back to Rome with him, and came back claiming victory before nipping back to Gaul to fight more resistance there. Now the next year, 54 BC, he came back, this time with cavalry and ballista and twice as many troops, and claimed once again that he was getting back at the Britons for supporting the Gauls. This time, he was able to use his larger force to cow several tribes into submission, granting him tribute, hostages, and favorable trade deals. But once again, he left British shores and took his soldiers with him because he had to get about the business of becoming tyrant over the whole of the Roman Empire. It's so deeply weird to me to be studying the Britons as the victims of unchecked empire expansion. Yeah, things, things really do move in circles, don't they? Then they vowed never again. <laughs> We have been the victim of too much oppression. Which means uh, that we're not going to oppress anybody because we've learned from that. No, we need to be the oppressors. Yeah, no, no, we're, gonna, we're really going to ratchet this one up. Yeah. Start making boats. <laughs> However, Britain by this point was now definitely in Rome's sphere of influence. Trade was booming and a target was painted on the country for future emperors. We had Augustus, who planned invasions three times in the three separate times in the 20s BC, but never pulled the trigger, having bigger problems on the home front, and decided to be happy with the trickle of tribute payments and the taxes from trade. Famed very stable genius and future subject Caligula, who was emperor from 37 to 41 AD, went so far as to mass six legions, over 50,000 men, in northern Gaul for an invasion, but adverse weather kept his fleet from sailing leading to the likely apocryphal story of him ordering his men into the water to attack the waves and wage war on Neptune himself. Now, it wasn't until 43 AD that someone with the administrative acumen and the will to put together another invasion was able to act, and that was the Emperor Claudius. Massing four complete legions and thousands of auxiliaries, 35,000 men in total, he launched an, his invasion from, that, from the start was different from previous efforts in every way. For a start, he wasn't plagued by problems back home to distract him, and he also didn't have certain qualities that his predecessor Caligula possessed, a.k.a. being about as stable as a Starbucks paper straw. Now, he landed and immediately declared that the British Isles were now under Roman control, so what are you, the leaders of the Britons, going to do about it? Everything went right in Claudius's campaign. Good weather, good supply, 
The commanders took their time, reinforcements from the continent were able to get there with frequency, and the legions spent more time building permanent forts than they did fighting in the field. But Claudius also made sure that not everyone was willing to fight him. It's important to note here that the Britons were not one united people. Even though the Britons, the Irish, and even the Northern Gauls all shared a certain cultural similarity during the Iron Age in terms of art style, social organization, and commonalities of language, this isn't a tightly knit society in terms of rulership. There's no high king of Britain, and Iron Age British society likely saw themselves in the reverse way to what we do today. We tend to see ourselves as members of groups from the top down. First, I'm an American, then I'm a Pennsylvanian, then I'm a Pittsburgher, and so on. Whereas the Celts and Britons saw themselves first as members of such and such a clan, then as part of the Iceni, or the Trinovantes, or the Catavolani, and then they probably didn't even have the concept of being part of the British people as a whole, or in the Celtic world at large. And when we say tribes, in terms of a more modern parallel, think of, oh, I don't know, uh, the, the indigenous nations of North America. Like how the Sioux Nation is made up of large-scale subdivisions like the Lakota, Dakota, Oglala, Hunkpapa, etc. Those large subdivisions would be the equivalent of the Iceni, the Trinovantes, etc. Each of these tribes would be made up of a collection of villages, towns, farmsteads, and other communities that would each have their own chieftains, and these leaders would in turn be subject to the command of a tribal king. So you have the king of the Iceni, the king of the Trinovantes, and so on. Of course, the Britons are part of the wider Celtic world, which includes the Gauls, the Irish, the ancient Spanish, and others, much as the Sioux were considered to be part of the wider Plains nations. So I just want to put a little more kind of definition mm. behind what I mean by that. That's helpful. I'll be honest, I didn't realize how little I knew about Britain in this time period mm -hmm. until I started studying this subject matter. Yeah, uh, I highly recommend the works of Dr. Francis Pryor. Really, really good archaeologist, has a lot of good documentaries. Uh, you can find them on YouTube. A uh, couple great books. I can look up some titles and I can post them to the show notes. Definitely would recommend that if you want to know more about prehistoric Britain. So instead of having to face the British as one giant united front, the Romans were able to deal with one tribe at a time. And while steel and slaughter are one way to handle these issues, it wasn't the only way. Rome made a lot of its conquests not by rolling in, slaughtering, or enslaving everyone, even though that was common enough, and setting up shop in the burned ruins. Instead, they would take the diplomatic path. You send envoys to these tribal kings and offer a deal. Become a client state of Rome, fall under the auspices of our empire, but you get to stay in your position, your people still obey your rule, your family line gets positions of influence within the Roman state, you can worship your own gods, and we'll even throw in some cash or some land to sweeten the deal. And we won't weaponize these elephants. In, re <laughs> in return, yeah, this is true. In return, you pay a tribute to the empire... You have to be willing to work with our officials. You have to have your troops serve as auxiliaries if we call them up. You have to give over a bit of your territory so that retiring Roman soldiers can settle on it. And you have to open up your trade markers to Roman traders if you already haven't. But you have our military might as your ally, not your enemy, and you can even collect taxes on the trade that Roman merchants are doing in your territory. Eventually, as rulers died, Rome land would pass fully into Roman control, or enough settlers would move in and follow the trade, and society would start to look a lot more Roman simply by cultural osmosis after a couple generations if everything went well. Now, going slowly and deliberately, Claudius and his generals use a mix of violence, coercion, and diplomacy to either bring the British tribes on side or to do away with the ones who resisted. Spreading out from Kent in the southeast of England, one by one, these tribes were pacified or brought on side. Strong forts were built as the army moved along, and almost as soon as the walls were built, 
garrison towns filled with retired legionaries and opportunistic traders and craftsmen, known as Coloniae Castri, or castle towns, sprang up, solidifying the Roman presence. Now, the Roman uh, campaign had a few had very few big-time setbacks as it moved through the main part of southern Britain, but it did end up slowing to a halt as you got into the craggy peaks of northern England and into the Snowdonia Mountains and the Purcelli Hills in Wales. Now, that would be, now handling the conflict there would be part of a much longer process, and we'll get to that more in part two. But over in Britain's southeastern quadrant, things were pretty pacified and life was simply going on. The tribes of that part of the country were going about the business of coexisting with the Romans, though some were wondering if the deal they'd made was quite all it was cracked up to be. The Iceni were one of those tribes that was trying to make the best of life under their new overlords. Inhabiting all of what is now Norfolk, as well as parts of Suffolk and Cambridgeshire, the Iceni were a band of perhaps 100,000 people, one of the larger tribes of the Britons, with about one in ten of those people being fighting-age men. Now Tacitus tells us that the Iceni had resisted Julius Caesar's expedition fiercely, but they were not one of the tribes conquered by force in the Claudian invasion, instead opting to ally themselves with the Romans and become a favored client state. Now, that doesn't mean the Iceni's relationship with Rome was entirely peaceful. In 47 AD, four years after the invasion, they rebelled against the Roman governor, Publius Scapula, after he demanded that they disarm themselves because he was, ironically, paranoid about a rebellion. The guy had a real chip on his shoulder. Hey. Get it? Because it's scapula. It's a it's a medical thing. You wouldn't get it, Kyle. I, <laughs> I just saw your I face. Got it. You were completely stunned. <laughs> I'm just astounded that came out of your mouth. Sorry, Kyle. It's kind of a smart person joke. <laughs> I'm going to burn your town down, too. Oh, no. So they've been bamboozled. <laughs> you know, I, I introduced this episode by saying, what happens when someone is driven to the point where they snap? He's burning down. He's burning down entire towns. History's greatest arson, Kyle Graper. I just hope you guys are around long enough to do an episode about it. Future, yeah, future episode subject, Kyle Graper. This is Kyle's killdozer. Yeah, but with the way the gas price on it, be like kill tractor. Yeah, I mean, I do have a Honda Civic. Kill scooter. Nice. (laughs) So the Iceni were defeated in a battle that actually sounds a bit more like a skirmish involving only a few hundred people. But the Romans managed to kill the old king, and that made way for someone who was happier to play ball with the new Roman officials that took Scapula's place once he got fired for being a paranoid asshole. Now, this this someone was a chieftain named Prasutagus. Tacitus and Suetonius both mentioned that he was a good ruler, skilled in diplomacy and matters of state, generous to his people, hospitable to guests, and a big fan of making money with Roman help. Throughout the 50s AD, his leadership helped to ensure that the Romans took a pretty hands-off approach with the Iceni, making them one of the more independent tribes in Britain under Roman rule. He even reached a deal where he was able to draft a will, bequeathing his kingdom jointly to the Emperor Nero and to his two daughters, ostensibly preserving Iceni independence for the future, an important step considering that he was probably in his 50s or early 60s by the time of our story. But Prasutagus was known mostly for who the wife and the mother of his daughters was. A woman named Boudicca. And we'll talk more about her after we take a short break.
Tired of listening to whiskey tubers talk about whiskeys you'll never see? Want to hear reviews about whiskeys you can actually afford? How about something you can truly find on the shelf? Are you looking for honest, unbiased feedback about the whiskeys in your budget? Then join us on YouTube at Thrifty Whiskey. Here at Thrifty Whiskey, we do blind tastings of whiskeys that are $30 and under. Bourbon. Scotch. Irish. Indian. And even Canadian. So catch us at Thrifty Whiskey. And until then, may the winds of fortune sail you. May you sail a gentle sea. May it always be the other guy who says, This drink's on me. Welcome back, and get ready for a whole lot of we don't know. <laughs> I'm just being honest. Yeah, I mean, like, we might know. We might know. Everybody might know. There are some things where we could take educated guesses, but we're about to get into a whole lot of we don't know because we know frustratingly little about the early life of Boudicca, and the information we get from Roman sources is conflicting to boot. Now, first off, we don't know when she was born. No one makes mention of the year, and the classical sources all argue about how old she was, putting her anywhere from her mid-30s to her late 40s by 60 AD. We know practically nothing of her childhood and her upbringing, where in particular she grew up, and what her lifestyle was like. However, based upon Roman accounts of Brythonic society at the time, we can assume that she probably grew up as the daughter of a chieftain or nobleman, and was married to Prasutagus to cement an alliance or to make peace between two rival clan groups. Now, historians aren't certain what kind of military training she would have had, or if she would have been a war leader in her society, but there are some data points that show that fighting was a part of life for the women of mm -hmm. the British. The, the Britons had a warrior god, Tutatis, as most societies did, but they also had a warrior goddess, Andraste. Many women have been found in Iron Age British grave sites, buried with knives, spears, swords, and shields. So the idea of women wielding weapons was probably pretty culturally ingrained. While some Roman sources do make mention of women going into battle in Gallo-Celtic armies, although not all, but this is an indicator that battle may, have, may not have been just the realm of men. Although this also could be Roman sources saying that women also fight to make the enemy's army seem bigger and to make their own victories seem more heroic. Now, we also practically know nothing about the role of queens in Gallo-Celtic society. They're hardly ever mentioned in the classical sources, and when they are, pretty much nothing is said about the details of their lives or their daily existence. Things said about Celtic women in general include them being in charge of farming efforts on the homestead and keeping the home, and of course, going through with the duty of making and birthing more little Celts, that men were still the head of the society and the head of the household, but there's something we have to keep in mind here. We said earlier that all of this information comes to us through a heavy Roman lens, and Roman society was heavily patriarchal, mm -hmm. to the point that the role women played was similar to how we see women in the Victorian period. The, the one thing about this, particularly through the lens, is we get most of this stuff from Tacitus or Cassius Dio. Or Suetonius, yeah. Or Suetonius, but like our two big ones for this one are going to be those two guys. And it feels to me that the Dio... Uh, not to be confused with Cassius Dio, mm. uh, who fronted uh, the band Rainbow before he replaced Ozzy Osbourne in Black Sabbath. Yep. Uh, that's Ronnie James Dio. I'm sorry. Uh, but Cassius Dio is more of like, ew, a girl. Like, yeah. it, you kind of get that that weird, like, in everything he writes, there's that, he's kind of like confused the whole time. He's like, how's a girl do it though? Yeah. <laughs> like, it, it... Just like his constant like, not, I don't want to say like turning his nose up, but more like, like furrowing his brow. <laughs> it's like, but she was a girl though. It's you know we were talking in the break about how there was all these chuds out here going like these incels going, don't have sex with a woman. That's the gayest thing you can do. 
I have a feeling there might be a little commonality God, between that a, viewpoint and he was an incel. And some now, of these classical now writers. These, now all these people just go to dinner with Kanye West at a former president's house. Mm. What do you think they ate? Uh, no, no, no. This Let's not the, get into it now. This is the worst possible <laughs> timeline. <laughs> but so, I mean, it could be worse. We could be a woman in ancient Rome because... You know, they were meant to be breeding machines who couldn't be trusted with things like voting or owning property, and they shouldn't be taken seriously as they were merely silly little creatures who needed to be their, the property of their fathers and husbands in order to protect them from their own follies. You Probably a little different to how Boudicca saw her own role, and rightfully so. But we also don't know how old she was when she married Prasutagus, or how old she was when she had her daughters, and there's no real cultural information about Celtic practice when it came to what was considered marrying age, and if there was a difference between how the noble class went about things compared to the greater population at large. Rome, we know, generally married off girls when they were very young, usually about 13 or 14, but considered the marriageable age for men to be older, normally in their early to mid-30s. So the closest parallel there is America in the 19th century, which was famed around the world for how young we would marry off our women, which I think we talked about in the... What was it, the Dan Sickles series? Because didn't he marry a 15-year-old? So. Uh, they were, yeah. Like, they were, like, betrothed yeah. at 15. Hey. I, don't think the, I don't think she married until, like, 17. But I know, like, whenever they were, you know. No, like, I for, think they were betrothed when she was, like, she 12. And she might have been, like. Because I know there was a, a short period of time between, like, whenever yeah. they were, like, you know, it was essentially an arranged marriage. Yeah. But, like. Yeah, I think she was like 12 or 13. I'd have to go back on that. Because yeah. I remember whenever we said it, dude, like around the table, everybody just went, Ugh. Hey, <laughs> come on, give us some credit. It's only legal in like half the states these days. That is true. It, it, it we're, woo, progress. Yay. Um, this is big news for Matt Gates. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the, uh, but yeah, I mean, America was kind of a bit of a laughing stock around the world for that. And Rome was cut from the same cloth. Now, did the same thing apply to the ancient Celts? We don't know. Now, there are only three things agreed upon about Boudicca by the sources at the time in this story's main events. The fact that she and Prasutagus were well-liked and respected by the Iceni, their tribe, the fact that they had two adolescent daughters, and, with a little bit of wiggle room on that agreement, Boudicca's appearance. All three classical authors note that she was tall, standing around six feet in height, with a powerful build, a striking and somewhat wild appearance, a strong voice, and a mane of red hair. Sorry, I'm having a moment. You're right there. Uh, uh, look, if you look at my dating history, I mean, you know my dating history pretty well. I don't really have a type, but I'm six three in Scottish. We might as well call this episode Rob's Ideal Woman. I mean, I ugh. I'm gonna tell Gallus Mag. I I know, and I'm, I'm gonna, gonna get tell in. her. I just I'm gonna do it. I bet Boudicca could really whisper some sweet nothings too. Yeah, just screeching <laughs> in your ear about like oppression. I mean, if she was gonna whisper anything, she wouldn't have to tilt her head upwards. I know that. <laughs> so, in 60 AD, things went from going well to going disastrously wrong. Prasutagus apparently, quite suddenly, died. He had a will drafted that had been accepted by the Roman state, giving his kingdom to his daughters, but also sweetening the pot for, in terms of his tribute to the current emperor, Claudius Caesar Augustus Germanicus, better known to history as Nero. Mm. And we will cover the story of Nero one day, but for all his faults and craziness in this story... He wasn't the problem. He had corresponded with Prasutagus, sending money and messages of goodwill in order to keep the Iceni on side, so you'd think that the Roman state would follow his lead on dealing with the issue of the Iceni succession. 
But there was a new Roman official in town, the procurator of Britannia, in charge of the province's financial affairs, a man named Catus De Decianus. Famously noted by Tacitus for his hatred of all things quote-unquote barbarian, Decianus decided that the move was not to continue the line of succession and keep up an arrangement that had been working famously for all parties involved for the last 13 years. Instead, he decided that the will was invalid because it had been agreed upon by his predecessor, and so he gathered, and not him. So he gathered men, traveled to the Iceni capital, over which now sits the charmingly named Norfolk village of Caister St. Edmund, and informed the widowed Queen Boudicca and her daughters that their holdings were to be absorbed into the Roman province in entirety, and that they were, they were no longer considered to have any claim on the land. As full Roman subjects, they would be taxed, and heavily, since they had shown disloyalty in the, to the empire 13 years earlier, and oh, the tribute that you were paying instead of taxes, you're going to want to keep up, that up as well, but not to the empire, to me, to stay on my good side, because failure to do so means I turn the legions on your people, and you all end up dead or enslaved. I feel like Roman <clears throat> governor was a pretty sweet gig. Well, he wasn't even the governor. He was the governor's money man. Yeah. So not only that, all of the goods and holdings of Prasutagus' household were to be confiscated as there was no man in the line of succession to hold them except for the Emperor Nero and Decianus was happy to hold on to all of that stuff on the Emperor's behalf. Oh, sweet. This is also the time whenever the, the, the Romans were basically forcing the Britons to take loans. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Whether you wanted them or not. Mm -hmm. yeah. And this was... Um, oh, goodness. It was the philosopher. Oh, what the hell? Seneca. Seneca. Yeah, it was like his idea. It was like, here, here's 40,000 whatever, like denarii. Mm -hmm. Like, cool. Here you go. Like, well, we don't want that. He was like, well, there's some interest. <laughs> yeah. But, but we didn't want to be dead with it. He was like, <laughs> Here's well, a gift of 40,000 denarii. Yeah. You could pay us back 60,000 denarii in five years. Yeah, he was like, well... Now it's now it's forty five. Like, it's, well, what if we can't pay it back? It's yeah. like, well, it's going to be sixty. Like, it's, it's kind of fun because it's these... so that's where the idea of high interest credit cards the poor people yeah. came uh, from. Seneca, if if you look back, <laughs> nothing like, new under the sun, buddy. If you look at the more archaic pronunciations of Seneca, it's just Sally May. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay, Kyle. We're going to get through this. I'm going to burn give, Sally May to the ground. <laughs> as soon as you give them another hundred thousand dollars, just to just to put a dent in that principle. It just, yeah, man, <laughs> nothing fucking new. Dude, it is this weird fucked up layer cake of extortion when you read it. Like, even the ones that they, that, that Rome, even the tribes that Rome ostensibly got along with, they and were kind of like the Iceni them. were, they capitulated. Yeah. They, they you know, Prasutagus or Presitagus, depending on which YouTube video you watch, mm -hmm. which professor. Um, but after the, after the revolt, he thought he saw that it was in the best interest of the Iceni to get along with mm -hmm. the Romans, mm -hmm. and he was right. Yeah. Like it's, it's not like he wasn't on bended knee here, but he was like, well, maybe if we just play a little ball here, mm -hmm. we'll stop being starved to death or stabbed. Because not only does it protect your people from Roman aggression, it also provides the opportunity for you to get a leg up on the other tribes that your people have been fighting for centuries. Yep. Correct. Right. Same thing happened with the indigenous nations here in Northern America and, and in North, for, I in mean, Southern America. That's like, that's what we talked about, yeah. uh, you know, briefly whenever we had kind of discussed the idea of a, uh, a Thanksgiving episode. We're like, well, everybody kind of knows the real story of Thanksgiving, and it's the reason that Squanto came out of the woods is because they needed an ally. Yeah, yeah. I, let's let's. It's not an easy choice, but I kind of fucking get it. People mm -hmm. seem to be pretty afeard of those sticks they're carrying that go bang. Mm -hmm. 
Maybe we want to get them on the one side. Thing, the one thing that I do love about the, the actual story of Thanksgiving is whenever he comes out of the woods, hands up and all that, and they, I mean, these people were already having issues with different tribes. Mm-hmm. Whenever they, they see one of these, one of the natives come out and immediately start speaking English. <laughs> That'd be fucking terrifying. Yeah. Like, did we die? Speaking of terrifying, <laughs> we didn't really oh, mention no. this. We mentioned this before the episode, but we haven't really talked about the Romans used elephants yeah. mm-hmm. in their wars in Britain. Yeah, when Caesar went, he took war elephants. How fucking scary is that? You've never seen anything bigger than a than, than an ox. Right. I well, mean, it, it would be problematic enough to see the chariots that the Romans brought. Be like, well, okay, well, you know. The Romans didn't use chariots. Not in combat. The, Rom- a- the Roman war chariot is absolutely a thing. I, I have a book on, on Roman. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I'll have to look cav- at cavalry and well, I mean, they didn't okay. use them as much as like the Egyptians did. No, but they absolutely had them. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Huh. They well, they put archers on them. Ah, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't like uh, you didn't have a couple guys with spears, but yeah, they were mounted archers, mm. which is why they were really good at stable firing platform and all that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, when these elephants show, well, up. it is the Romans. They're Italians. They can't be really good horse archers if they're on horseback because it's hard to fire a bow and one of your hands is going like this. Yeah, you have to talk like, whenever you're whenever you're ah, eating a yes. big <laughs> plate of spaghetti. <laughs> the viewers at home can't see Rob pinching his fingers together in an upward motion uh, because we are an audio they, medium. Don't worry, they knew exactly. Every what he was doing. I have yelled. Okay, Everyone I have yelled knew. at all of you guys for making visual jokes in an audio medium. It is my it's turn. Your, it's your turn. It's my turn. It's I fine. have fucking earned this shit. <laughs> Mama me. But no, everybody. As soon as you said that, everybody knew what you were talking yeah. about. Because remember, it's never racist to do an Italian accent. So, <laughs> but yeah. So. Yeah, Caesar shows up with elephants. How freaky is that? Just imagine, I'm, I'm imagining Empire Strikes Back when the yeah. rebels are like yeah. in the trenches, lifting their heads up, and they look in their binoculars, and they're just walkers. Giant, <laughs> giant. It's like that, but you're like mucking your farm field with a rake. Yeah, you, and... you see people like coming over the hill. It's like, okay, there's there's the there's the legions. Like, this is already, with that. That's already not, not great. great. Like, Boy, they're wearing a lot of shiny shit. Yeah, there's like a, a couple guys on horseback with like big plumed helmets like, uh-oh, those guys look pretty important. <laughs> and then elephants. It just keeps coming over the hill. hill. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that guy's got a really big head. Oh, that guy's got a really big nose. Holy shit! <laughs> what the fuck did they do to that horse? <laughs> yeah. So... Back to the story. Not only did Cadus Decianus show up and say, all your shit is ours now, um, he he also had his men dig up Prasuticus's body, which was buried in the floor of the royal household, as was the practice of the Iron Age Britons. They would bury their ancestors in the floor of their house. Every building in Britain is built on corpses. Mm-hmm. The entire country is built on top of corpses. Yeah. Um, but his body was apparently dug up and desecrated, although nobody makes any detailed notes as to how. With her home ransacked and her late husband dishonored and her family now disenfranchised, Boudicca, of course, protested. And that's where the real brutality began. Decianus had Boudicca seized and tied to a post and brutally flogged, tearing the skin of her back to tatters for the crime of speaking up for herself. And this is, this is important. That's what the Romans did to slaves. Yeah. And afterwards, she was taken down and made to watch as the procurator's men savagely gang-raped 
both of her teenage daughters in front of her. Their ransacked household was put to the torch, but it wasn't just the Iceni royal family who suffered. Once you set men to violence, it is often hard to turn that violence off, and most of the homes in the Iceni capital were ransacked and set alight, and the blood of the common people was spilled just to satisfy the greed and rapacity of one Roman official. Not only were the wealth and goods of the Iceni capital taken, but Decianus also intercepted goodwill payments that had been sent from Nero intended for their British allies and confiscated them, ensconcing them safely within his own personal treasury. Utica was bowed, but not yet broken. Something snapped within her. This is when it becomes I Spit on Your Grave, the prequel. Yeah. This is where it becomes a grindhouse flick. She had spent years happily working to coexist with the Romans, but some sort of dissatisfaction had remained, and after experiencing the tender mercies of Roman diplomacy shown towards a woman newly widowed, she said no more. Cassius Dio attributes the following words to Boudicca after the assault on her and her family. Quote, Have we not been robbed entirely of most of our possessions and those the greatest, while for those that remain we pay taxes? Besides pasturing and tilling for them all our other possessions, do we not pay a yearly tribute for our very bodies? How much better would it be to have been sold to masters once and for all than possessing empty titles of freedom to have to ransom ourselves every year? How much better to have been slain and to have perished than to go about with such attacks on our heads? Among the rest of mankind, death frees even those who are in slavery to others. Only in the case of the Romans do the very dead remain alive for their profit. Why is it that through no none of us have any money, how indeed could we or where would we get it, we are stripped and despoiled as a murderer's victims? And why should the Romans be expected to display moderation as time goes on when they have behaved towards us in this fashion at the very outset, when all men show consideration even for the beasts that they have newly captured? Now, we don't know the hue, how the hue and cry went out among the Iceni about what had happened to their newly widowed queen, But word definitely got around, and before too long the Iceni were picking up shield and spear and sword to wreak vengeance on behalf of their wronged queen. There aren't a lot of details about the early stages of the revolt, but things probably started small, with isolated attacks on Roman traders, farmsteads, and small military patrols. The Roman legions in Britain, the three of them that were there, totaling about 18,000 men, were all off elsewhere, in the north of the country and off in Wales, leaving behind a fairly minimal military presence in what was until recently the most pacified part of Britain, so there wasn't a ready force set to face off against the rising tide of British rebellion. But Boudicca and her war chiefs knew that Rome would eventually respond, and when they did, the Iceni wouldn't have the numbers to overwhelm a military response at scale. But the Iceni weren't going to be alone. They weren't the only ones who had been wronged by Rome, and some tribes had a far bigger axe to grind with their imperial overlords than the Iceni did. To the south of Iceni lands, resided the Trinovantes and their dethroned king, Dumnivalanus. The Trinovantes were another sizable tribe, about the same size as the Iceni, about 100,000 people. But the Trinovantes hadn't had the relatively peaceful relationship with Rome that the Iceni had enjoyed. They had resisted the Claudian invasion and had suffered terribly as a result, with thousands of their people killed or enslaved and harsh taxes and tribute enacted against them. They had been enemies on and off of the Iceni, and tribal warfare and raiding was no unusual event in the preceding centuries, but given that the enemy of my enemy is often my friend, 
When it came to striking back against the Romans, the Trinovantes were more than happy to join their tribal rivals. Their part in the revolt probably began the same way, with attacks on Roman traders, settlers, and patrols, but before long, the forces of the tribal alliance were beginning to gather in strength. Not all of them were warriors. Plenty of them were likely just pissed off farmers, tradesmen, and all their wives who found something sharp or heavy enough to function as a weapon for the time being. Well, Nate, so they had been disarmed, not in the too distant past, but they were also metal workers. Mm -hmm. But this gathering, but this gathered force was larger than any Celtic army gathered since the days of Julius Caesar's war against the Gauls a century before. Tacitus puts it as 100,000 people under arms, fully half the population of the combined tribes. Suetonius mentions 120,000. Cassius Dio, the same. This <coughs> is somewhat unlikely, as even when there's a citizen levy to reinforce existing fighting forces, it's not likely to exceed about 25% of the whole population. However, that's still 40 to 50,000 angry and armed Britons taking the field, ready to pounce on a province that has no significant military protection. It's surprising to some, especially the Roman writers, that it was a woman who ended up as the primary war chief in charge of this assembled force, that it wouldn't be handed off to some experienced male military leader or chieftain. But if it is true that women did take part in fighting in Celtic society, then it does make sense that Boudicca becomes head of the army, not just because of her commanding physical presence and her position as Queen of the Iceni, but as a fresh symbol for the wrongs done to the Britons by Rome. Going before the Trinovantes, Boudicca says, according to Tacitus, quote, It is not as a woman descended from noble ancestry, but as one of the people that I am avenging my lost freedom, my scourged body, and the outraged chastity of my daughters. This is a woman's resolve. As for men, they may live and be slaves, end quote. The raiding and the small-scale attacks were serving the tribes to help get the lead out on the Romans, but it was not going to be enough for, the pe for people so aggrieved, and Boudicca decided that what needed to happen was that a statement needed to be made. They had the, pe uh, they had the people, they had the opening, so it was time to attack a more major target. It would let the Romans know that their hold on Britain was slipping, it would serve to acquire loot and supplies for the tribal army, and to take and destroy a Roman city could set other tribes towards joining the revolt and sending the Romans packing. Their target was Camelodunum. Situated in Essex, where the town of Colchester now stands, Camelodunum was a Colonia Castrum, a town that had started as a fort that ended up being filled with settlers and retired soldiers that had grown up around the walls. That was a pretty, pretty common thing that the Romans would do, is mm -hmm. the colonies would largely be filled with soldiers. Mm -hmm. Retired Vets. soldiers and people looking for financial opportunity. Yep. People follow right. the army. It's, it, it, um, helped to, it helped to militarize mm -hmm. the, their, their expansion. I mean, it's Colonia, which, of course, will also lead into the modern term colony. Mm -hmm. But these were a series of forts, Yeah, like by and large. Like, this is what we're doing. These are almost always fortified. Yeah. And, and it's forts that became cities. Uh, I saw a statistic that there were over 700 what would be considered Colonia within the bounds of the Roman Empire. Now, not uh, granted, not all of them existed existed at the same time. Some of them mm -hmm. happened in phases as the frontier would shift. But oftentimes, these colonia would turn into some of the biggest cities in the Roman interior. Oh, yeah. Um, like Roman, like London, York, mm -hmm. all of these started as Roman colonia. Capua. Capua. Capua I mean, was one of the biggest ones. A lot of, a lot of the... I the, mean, that was a couple hundred years before, yeah. but like that's... 
A lot of France's biggest cities all started as uh, Colonia. Sure. I mean, it, yeah. Germany was much the same way. Germany is the same way. Spain, Spain has a huge concentration of them. Every city in Spain, especially in like southeastern Spain, like as you yeah, get down, as you get down, down towards, towards like, like Gibraltar, Gibraltar and yeah. I uh, I was in Cologne this summer, and that whole city Roman. was built yep. on one of these. Sure is. I mean, yeah. a lot of the Roman stuff is still there. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So the forts garrison had moved on years ago, further north where the conflict was more intense, but the town still stood although with a minimal garrison and what walls still existed were badly were badly in disrepair. And Camelodunum had actually been the ostensible capital of Roman Britain in the initial few years after the Claudian invasion. It was the first really large-scale mm-hmm. fort that was built. It was the home base of the reviled procurator, Cicatus Decianus, and that made it a very tempting target for the Britons. Also, its administrators had spent years dealing unfairly with the Trinovantes and had seized much of their land to settle retiring soldiers on, and had also used forced labor to build the walls, many of the buildings, and especially the huge Temple of Claudius, which was a massive structure, the largest temple in Britain for the first 200 years of the Roman occupation. And and it was devoted to the memory and newfound godhood of the late emperor and the man who had unleashed Roman hegemony on Britain. It also had a population of about 30,000, ripe for the slaughter. Could you imagine how pissed off that would make everybody? The, the newly deified emperor has now the largest place of worship in your country that he decided to take over. Basically take at the point of a sword. I mean, it wasn't by accident. Or the point of a spear, more, yeah. more accurately. It wasn't, it wasn't by accident that no. this temple was dedicated to Claudius. Man, I can't wait for the Trump Presidential Library. It's going to be like something out of that uh, third Bioshock game. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Jesus (laughs) Christ. The Prophet. It's just a floating library with a bunch of Confederate flags. Jesus Christ. The Dukes of Hazzard. Problem is, they can't can't keep the engines maintained, so it's just held up by a bunch of balloons like the house and up. Oh, God. (laughs) So, the huge tribal army turned in the direction of Camelodunum and started marching, picking up more fighters along the way and looting and burning any existence of the Romans that they came across on their journey. Now, word got to Camelodunum of the approaching rebel force, and the city flew into a panic, writing to whomever might listen to send them some help. All the regular Roman forces were too far away to make any kind of difference. Someone who did answer was Cadus Decianus. Although either thinking that the numbers of the rebels being discussed were overblown, or letting his disregard for the capabilities of the Britons get in the way of good judgment, he only sent 200 men from his procurator's guard, who were poorly trained, poorly equipped, and little better than useful thugs when it came to doing things like, I don't know, seizing a queen's household and flogging her against a post. However, the reinforcements also came with an order for the citizens, under pain of death at the guard at the procurator's guard's hands, that no one was to flee the city so as not to alarm the citizenry. Bad omens are written about, strange occurrences that set the city further on edge. Tacitus tells of such ominous portents, quote, The statue of victory fell down, its back turned as though in retreat from the enemy. God, how would that, which would that fuck with your head? And the Romans were big, big yeah. into this kind of shit. Yeah. Women roused into frenzy, chanted of approaching destruction, and declared that the cries of the barbarians had been heard in the council chamber. That the theater and amphitheater had re-echoed with the same shrieks. That a reflection of the colonia 
burned and overthrown had been seen in the Thames estuary. The sea appeared blood red, and specters of human corpses were left behind as the tide went out. It's worth mentioning that Camelodunum is quite close to the coast. The tidal wave of tribal fighters soon smashed into the vulnerable city with the power that only vengeful rage can provide. The garrison sent by the procurator abandoned the fortifications without a fight, not even bothering to close the gates, and they all retreated into the huge Claudian temple, locking out the civilians who they had forbidden to leave the city and leaving them to the mercy of the Britons. And it was really the only defensible position. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they just locked everyone out. But there wouldn't be any mercy. No. The no, that was, no, she, she made that yeah. abundantly clear. The regular people of Camelodunum didn't stand a chance. The streets and gutters of the Colonia ran ankle deep with the blood of the, of the slain, the people having nowhere to run as the Iceni and Trinovantes poured in from every side. No one was spared. Not women, not children, not slaves. Some people hid in their homes and used daggers to end their own lives and those of their families to avoid suffering at the hands of the vengeful rebels. The initial slaughter was pretty quick. It was only a matter of a few hours for the population of Britain's biggest Roman city to be wiped out. The guards who had retreated to the temple put up some resistance for about two days till the Britons broke in, and then they were just sheep in a pen. After several days of looting, gathering food and supplies, and taking whatever wasn't nailed down, the town was set to the torch. The Claudian temple was torn down stone by stone until only the foundation remained. The bronze statue of the late emperor was smashed to pieces, its detached head tossed into the nearby river Ald as a sacrifice to the local gods, and the rest melted down to forge blades and spearheads. The destruction was so complete that two millennia later, a very clear layer of ash and burnt material three to four inches thick covered the entire archaeological site when it was dug in the late 1980s. Damn. In amongst this ash layer was a shocking amount of charred human bone fragments, many of which bear markings from wounds inflicted by blades or blunt objects. The people had been left in the street to burn with the homes they no longer needed, cremated with the city they thought would be their refuge. It's said that during the slaughter and subsequent destruction of the town, Boudicca stood atop her war chariot, a mad glee in her eyes, happily drinking in the suffering of the people who had so wronged her as her red hair danced in the wind created by the flames. Now, a lucky few people did manage to escape, however, and made their way out towards the further reaches of Roman Britain to seek help against this new massive threat. A response had already been formed. Five cohorts of the Ninth Legion Hispania, about 3,000 men, which were marching to reinforce the city, but they didn't make it in time. However, Boudicca knew they were coming. A clash was set to occur, one that would pit the forces of the ancient world's mightiest empire against the will and the vengeful fury of a conquered people set on casting down their oppressors. Two things were certain before this would all be over. Britain would see far more bloodshed, and Rome would know terror at the hands of Queen Boudicca. Every, every single infantryman in the Ninth Spanish Legion were killed. And we'll get to that. Every single one. Ugh, spoiler alert. Jesus Christ, like this, like... It's been... There were a... It's been 2,000 years, Kyle. It, yeah. Word's gotten out. But, it, like, 
It's the um, oh my goodness, what's the name of the book? I have it down. Um, uh, the uh, Boudica Iron Age Warrior Queen, which mm-hmm. I, I think we cited in this one. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, they said that her army was a hundred and twenty thousand individuals. A hundred and twenty thousand. That is a massive army by like regardless yeah. by modern of standards. What, it's still yeah, a big fighting era. force. It was what one hundred and seventy thousand. For D Day, and that's the largest. Mm-hmm. One hundred and twenty thousand is the current like on the ground fighting strength of the entire U.S. Marine Corps right now. Mm-hmm. And these are rebels. Yeah. And, like on the subject of like Kyle said that they were disarmed. Yeah, but you sort still of. have you still have axes. Well, yeah, you still they still have shovels. And that's the that's they the took thing. the swords, which yeah. they could then make their own again because right. a lot of them were metal. And spits. it turns out whenever you. You start tearing apart entire cohorts and legions that they leave some behind. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, I mean, yeah, it, well, you mentioned that. The Celts were, and then the British Celts especially, were some of the most expert iron workers mm-hmm. in the world at this point. Like, there are two focal points of the Iron Age. One is in the Middle East, and the other is in Britain. Yep. I mean, well, I mean, even preceding this, the Bronze Age really started in Britain. Mm-hmm. It was these smiths. They, they had again, the they building had the tin, sure. figured out alloys. They knew how to cast it. They knew how to make weapons out of it. They were just damn good, and they were fast. And it doesn't take long to make a spearhead. No. I mean, good Lord, the, the Bessemer process for making carbon steel. British. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's still some of the largest tin mines like active today. Yeah. They're, they're, like, they're still doing this. There's so much raw material there they're still doing it i mean demand for bronze has gone down <laughs> but oh, it's just like i i get it yeah i absolutely get it and she watched she watched everything she had most of all her dignity mm-hmm. get taken from her and those of her daughters right so what do you do you've got nothing left now what well, you might as well have a go. If I had kids and I watched what happened to her daughters happen in front of me, the only way you're stopping me is it's, is you're making my heart stop. Yeah, I mean it's because I'm going to keep coming. It's some John Wick shit. Yeah, yeah. But like she has, she has nothing. There, there's no holdings left. What mm. happens when John Wick has an army of 120 thousand at his back? I mean, give it like the I mean, it's nice John Wick. Sequel. He probably well, don't need. He it. is an army of 120 thousand. Right. I saw a movie and the sequel. Whenever they have the real quiet gunfight with snipers, and they're just like. Sort of shooting at each other, like, real quick. It's fucking hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh... Yeah, she couldn't do that. John so, yeah. That. But there's a lot more violence to come in part two. Um, and she is... I mean, here's the thing. She unleashed hell on Kamala Dunham. She's just getting started. Mm-hmm. She is just getting started. Yeah, that's that's the appetizer. Yeah. That's and we're, we're going to have a... we can do this. We're going to have a little bit of a breakdown of the matchup in, in part two. We're going to discuss a little more... What the Romans are bringing into the field, what the Britons are bringing well, I mean, into the, the field. The Romans are now actively starting to bring things into the field. She's basically like, these aren't these aren't legionnaires. Mm-hmm. Like these aren't. It's not a standing Roman army. She's fighting some soldiers, but it's not. They're not meeting in the field. It's not a massive field army yet. Right, which yet. is what which is what Rome is exceptionally good at. Yep. But we're going to get into a breakdown of how the Romans fight and what they fight with, how the Britons fight, what they fight with, and how these armies are going to come at each other. But we're also going to keep going with the story. So uh, a whole bunch to look forward to in part two. So any other thoughts, guys? What What did we learn today? 
if you wrong me, I'm gonna burn your city down. Yeah, like I, I get Hell it. Hell, half no fury, like a Kyle the one, scorned. The one wild part it's just is just Kyle on a chariot in a giant red wig is terrifying. It is, it, it, there's not like a weird conspiracy here. Like no. everybody, like her, she was flogged, her daughters were raped. That's why she went on this. Everything Cassius was taken Dio from her. never says that. He's like, yeah, he's kind of pissed off. He took some money and stuff, and stuff. What what stuff? What stuff, Cass? Mm-hmm. What stuff happened? Yeah, Cassius Dio of the three is kind of the most whitewashed. He's also the one approaching it from the furthest chronological distance. Yeah. yeah. So maybe that's a function of it. And it's, I mean, because we talk about like, because Tacitus is the one that has the most detail mm-hmm. in his accounts. He's also the one who's closest chronologically. He's the one who has a personal connection yep. to these events because his father-in-law was in Britain at the time. Um, he had a big bone to pick with the administration yeah. at the time. But it's also, True. I mean, Cassius Dio was using Tacitus and Suetonius as sources for mm-hmm. his account. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's like making a Xerox of a Xerox of a Xerox, I suppose. Maybe that has something to do with it. But, yeah, so more to come in part two. Chris, if people want to find us out there, where can they do it? If you want to find us, you can definitely drop us a line if you want to, if you have any... Uh, Concerns, any corrections, anything you might like to add. If you'd like to talk about Roman chariots mostly being used to deliver their pizzas, uh, you can go ahead and make that <laughs> joke, which I refrain, <laughs> I refrain from doing. <laughs> while while usage in combat was limited, they were used mostly for parades, couriers, and pizza delivery. Uh, you can email us those at trrpod at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at podcast trr. Check us out on Instagram at trrpod. Uh, you can find us on Facebook if you look up Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. And if you would like to join us in Valhalla, look no further than www.patreon.com slash trrpod. For as little as a dollar a month, you too can join us in the halls of Valhalla. We will drink ale from Curved Horn and sing songs of victory. I, um, <laughs> I'm just thinking about the pizza. And it was like, you know, we, we, we get it to you in half a notch on the sundial or it's free. <laughs> Is that well, how that works? Why do you think the roads were so important? It, Dominoes yeah. was losing its ass. They say it was for marching the, the legions from place to place, but no. No. History lies to us. This is why you can't trust experts. One of the first things the Romans did whenever they got there was just start building roads. Yep. Just immediately, like, well, we need some roads. By the you way, all those roads are still there. Sure are. Fossway. Um, <laughs> We're yeah, ha- the, like, uh, maybe, sorry, continue. Well, no, but yeah, all these roads are still there. Uh, Hadrian's Wall, still there. There's a couple got- of walls. Yeah, the Antonine Wall. There's like a couple of them. <laughs> it's not just all one. these forts. Like it's here's the thing. Like you go to Britain now, and we could talk about this more in the next episode. You go to Britain now. There's Roman shit. It's everywhere. Everywhere. Mm-hmm. Everywhere. Like summer before my uh, senior year of high school, I spent a week and a half in the south of Britain, dig, doing part, taking part in an archaeological dig at a Roman villa. It's one of the coolest things I've ever done. It's one of the coolest things I've ever done, and this was a minor villa and they are digging up animal skeletons they are digging up nails they are digging up tile hypocaust systems like it was it was crazy and this was a little nothing villa at this place called barkham and it's the weird the weird thing about that is like there's so much that remains of roman civilization in all of their colonies and all of their expanse that doesn't happen for other places It, it really doesn't a lot of these other buildings are torn down you know, like in in Mexico, there's there were a lot of French buildings, mm-hmm. but most of them were just removed. Yeah, you know, like let's get this the fuck out of here. Everybody like Roman stuff, they just kind of kept it, which is weird to me. Well, I mean, even saves like you from the, having to 
build shit. And a lot of it, of course, was robbed out to build like Norman churches and stuff like that. Right. But, but I mean, look at the, the pyramids, like yeah. the Great Pyramids. They didn't always look like that. They just took all the fucking stones off of them and yeah. built new shit. That's why they're yeah. stepped now. They were smooth. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's but if you if you do find yourself in Britain, it's not hard to get to to a Roman site. I, I wonder, especially with especially with Europe. So the Roman Empire collapses, you immediately move into the Black Death and the Dark Ages. So you weren't doing a lot of city building for a long time. Yeah. And by the yeah. time that period's through, everything's been Romanized. It's now become like the great empire we once mm-hmm. were. That people started to idolize. The the fall of the Roman Empire is also it's a little different because it's just so there's a lot of like compartmentalization mm-hmm. there you know like like the Gauls whenever they had successfully like taken their land back from the Roman Empire all of their military leaders were Roman mm-hmm. and they used they used Roman buildings they used Roman titles like you look at the like the Merovingian kings and things like that in, mm-hmm. in Dark Ages France <laughs> I mean, they're treating it like a mini Rome. Mm-hmm. They yeah, really more are. More or less. But the system, it yeah. worked. And also, it just did. because the Roman Empire receded didn't mean that things weren't happening. But if you go from building in stone to building in wood, then instead of looking for these big, thick foundations that are easy to find archaeologically, you're looking for stains in the ground. You're looking for post holes. Yeah. You're yeah. looking for trenches. You're looking for stuff like that. And that's a lot, hell of a lot harder to find. Mm-hmm. But uh, it, it's I could go on about Roman Britain for days. I love this shit. But... Um, I'm not going to subject you to that. Uh, Dear listeners, uh, we are merely going to say stay tuned for Boudicca Part 2 the next time we meet. Although I am worried that Kyle's going to show up with an army of 120,000 at his back to wreak untold... Hopefully he burns down Sally May. Fiery fury. We'll have enough time to get the legions to find him and fight him a field. Mm. (laughs) It's our only chance. Hey, and you and I do look good in plumed helmets. Sure. I'm just going to have one. I'm going to have the hard drive from the server that has all the student loan information on a pike. (laughs) We didn't didn't even get into the part about the pikes yet. We'll talk about that in the next one. Oh, yeah. No, there's there's more to come from that. Oh, yeah. But, uh, yeah. So, plenty of absolute havoc I was going to say fun but no absolute havoc to look forward to so yeah it's whew. stay tuned everybody it's easy to root for but she wasn't nice it's 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 easy to root for and then you feel a little bad about it afterwards it's the same as like the killdozer guy like was yeah. he right <laughs> well I mean I don't want to say I don't want to be hasty here yeah. <laughs> stay tuned for future episode subject Kyle Dozer <laughs> <laughs> And with that evil little laugh coming out of a man who... I don't like that look in his eye. Let's get out of here. Red